You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode 72 of Here for the Truth. This is an episode with Seth Lyon, husband of Irene Lyon, who was here for episode 68, where we dove deep into the nervous system. You're going to want to put your seatbelts on for this episode. We dive into a broad array of deep, triggering, esoteric subjects, such as ancient origins of human beings, the Anunnaki, porn, trauma-based mind control, circumcision, and all the various correlations. This is an absolutely incredible conversation, which we're so excited for you to listen to. So thank you for being here. Right before Seth comes on, just want to remind our listeners that um, applications for round two of our private eight-week group coaching program, Rise Above the Herd, are now open. Um, Spots are filling up. So if you're looking to get an application in, please do so. Also, we have um, a unique bonus purely for our podcast listeners. So this is only for you if you're hearing this right now. If you do submit an application, when you're prompted to ask, how did you hear about us? And so here for the Truth podcast, and you will be offered an additional $100 discount savings on the cost of the course as well. All our episodes can be found at hereforthetruth.com. Our ebook, 55 Signs of Low Self-Esteem for Truth Seekers, can be found there too. Without further ado, here's Seth. Please enjoy this conversation. Everybody, episode 72 of Here for the Truth. And today we have Seth Lyon. Seth Lyon is a somatic trauma specialist with a private practice in Vancouver, BC. And he also works to support his wife, Irene Lyon, who we had on a few episodes ago, a few episodes ago, diving deep into the nervous system, who does the same work through online programs that reach people all around the world. He's trained extensively in somatic experiencing, which works to restore goodness, vitality, and regulation at the core level where trauma takes root, the nervous system. Seth is also trained in an offshoot of SE called somatic practice, a form of touch work which is especially effective for working with early developmental and complex trauma. Seth combines this intricate nervous system and stress physiology work with his 20-plus years experience in energy work, shamanism, and sound healing. At the core of his practice is the knowledge that all people have the capacity to heal and that this capacity has its foundation in understanding how to first listen to, then work with each unique human system. Power couple here, Irene and Seth. Seth, thank you so much for being here for the truth. Oh, happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me, both of you. Cool, yeah. No, it's a pleasure. It's our absolute pleasure, man. We've been diving deep into a couple of your blogs and very, very curious and interesting to say the least. Thank you for all the work that you've been doing and the information that you've been sharing and putting out there, making accessible. The way I want to start this one is if I could just get like a brief history of your rites of passage, your journey, Mm. I guess your awakening process into being who you are here today. Sure thing. So my, my background was pretty ordinary in terms of what people may experience in the industrialized world. I grew up in the Bay Area of California um, in a a split family. Uh, My parents split when I was two. Uh, So I spent my life ping-ponging back and forth uh, between those two different houses, which was, I think you could say, a rite of passage in its own right um, in terms of its form, the effect it had on the formation of my nervous system and the tendencies that I had. 
uh, because they were very different households. My dad's house was one that was very tense, um, always hypervigilant, always on guard, like waiting for the next sort of explosion to happen. And my mom's house was much more depressive, sort of more cozy, felt safer, but was also kind of collapsed, uh, lethargic, more in the free side of things from a nervous system perspective, whereas in my dad's house, it was more fight flight. So that was the sort of process my nervous system gotten trained in growing up was sort of, okay, tension, 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 collapse, and ah, safety in the collapse. And that formed a pattern that, you know, I, it took 30 years or so to actually resolve and come back to regulation. On top of that, there were many significant experiences I had growing up that were, that were really difficult, of course. Um, I mean, the, the earliest one uh, being circumcision, uh, being genital, genitally mutilated uh, as an infant, which so many of us men are, um, that has a huge effect. Um, so that was very, very uh, impactful. I think was at the root of difficulties I had later with addictions to uh, uh, sex, but when took the form of porn addiction. Sex addiction can take many forms. Uh, for me, it was about porn because I could control it. I think that core wound of circumcision was a really uh, big part of that uh, taking place. And we can get into that later. Definitely. Yeah. Um, growing up, until I left the home system and basically escaped to college, uh, I kind of just did my own thing, kept under the radar, wasn't really curious about much, had no spiritual life. Um, wasn't, you know, I just, I was into music. I was into my buddies, you know, I didn't really think about much beyond that. When I escaped that situation and got to university where I was majoring in music, things started to open up more. So that's where I had my first like psychedelic experiences, for example, I had a great mushroom trip uh, when I was 21 with my buddy in the woods, which just completely opened my perception as to what is reality, started asking questions about that, got into spirituality, early books like really formative ones like Way of the Peaceful Warrior, uh, one by Richard Bach. Um, those were two that I think a lot of people have read along that path. And those are really impactful. And got it just started exploring, started exploring consciousness as I was going through university, getting more interested in those types of things. And when I graduated from university, I realized, and I, I had been majoring in music, so it's not like, you know, I was preparing for a career in the corporate world, you know, but I thought that maybe I would do film scoring or something hmm. and only to realize when I graduated, well, that's actually would require me to move to LA or New York, which I was like, no freaking way. I'm, I'm like, I'm going into smaller and smaller towns. I don't want to go into the city. So that was a bit of a conundrum. And I kind of just bummed around for a year and then discovered, um, Vipassana meditation through the various kind of counterculture places I was living. And I did a 10 day sit. And that was a very, that was probably the first big rite of passage turning point that made a huge impact on my life in a discernible way at the time. Because I had an experience of remembering um, past lives being in that setting, in that mon monastic setting, doing this practice which came super, super easy to me. Like I did not struggle at all. And when the 10 days of silence were up and everybody was talking, like, you know, I was just like, why you, like I could just stay for another 10 days in silence. Like it was just, I was like bliss. I loved it. And I had a lot of like really powerful experiences. Um, just 
eye open meditations, kind of watching, like I was on mushrooms, but I wasn't like seeing, you know, the patterns in the world and uh, just connecting to source, just lots of spiritual downloads. And that set me on a trajectory where I basically took off into the woods for 13 years. I sold all my stuff. I bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii with 300 bucks in my pocket. And that was it. I bummed around. I camped. I was just meditating. You know, I was basically just doing work trade situations if I needed to get a little security temporarily, or I'd camp in the jungle and camp on the beach, just cruising, you know, living in the counterculture, not working. And that was sort of the beginning, the real beginning of my healing process was getting out of that, you know, rat race of the industrialized world, not worrying about income, you know, living close to nature, uh, doing meditative practices. So also when I met my first wife and had a son, so was in a family system and then that split apart because it inevitably, neither of us had dealt with our trauma yet. So, you know, it didn't, couldn't really last, um, but great relationship with my son still. And, you know, we've stayed in each other's lives and everything. That's, that's really good. Um, but that's really an important point is even though I had dove deep into spirituality and consciousness and energy work and shamanism and all of that stuff, none of that actually addressed my trauma. It gave me all sorts of tools and practices and forms of awareness that would be very useful later on when I did the trauma work, but it didn't actually touch any of it because to do the trauma work, you need something which is very specific, which includes understanding the physiology, understanding the nervous system. And I didn't have that understanding. So in many ways, I was what we would call spiritually bypassed. Mm -hmm. like I thought that I was totally enlightened and like master of my world and manifesting the reality I wanted and all of that. And to a degree, I was, but I was not in touch with a vast portion of myself. Mm -hmm. And when I met Irene, um, which was many years later, and she had just finished the somatic experiencing training, I was like, oh, wow, what's that? Tell me about that. Because it was a lot like what I'd been doing already on my own but with all the nuance and understanding of the nervous system. And that's when my trauma healing journey began. So there was like 13 years of kind of prep is kind of how I look at it, where I was like unplugged from the world, absorbing all sorts of great information. And then I started the trauma work when I moved back into the world, which is not coincidental, right? Like I had to re-engage with the things that I hated and I hated them because of my trauma, right? So making a living, having a job, you know, being around people, you know, <laughs> I mean, all of that was stuff that I had resisted a lot. And so by engaging, that's the last sort of rite of passage, I would say, was coming back into the world and, and doing the trauma work for myself and also then learning how to do it with others, how to provide that service for other people. And that was really... Um, that's really where I got to where I am now of, of having all of that stuff come together into the practice that I do now. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much for sharing all that. And yeah. I love, I love uh, that you said that you had to come back and face the things that in essence you were maybe yeah. running away from or ignoring. And it's something, you know, I live in Los Angeles too, which you can say is sort of a, a, a Mecca for 
the spiritual world in some ways. And so you see that a lot as people that are living in more of a, or living life through a spiritual bypass lens. Now, yeah. I don't want to discount the, the the tools and and the gifts that can come from being on that path, but yeah. there is something missing when you're not including the the nuances of, of knowing the soma, knowing the body and, and connecting to it in, in a certain way. So um, that's pretty, uh, pretty awesome. And I, and I, I love that you kind of like escaped for 13 years too. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty cool story. Um, yeah. yeah, there was something else I wanted to ask, but it slipped my mind. Oh, no worries. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's totally true. It's You can do so much and there's so many good things, so many good modalities, so much yeah. good knowledge. Uh -huh. But without the core understanding of the nervous system and yeah. We so we we touched on like the nervous system with Irene, but I don't know if we went into like even just the question like what is trauma and mm -hmm. and then and then what happens in the body when a person's traumatized. Mm -hmm. I'd love to maybe just dive in a little bit into that before we go into maybe some of the other uh, more specific. Uh, sure thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, trauma. If you ask different practitioners, you'll get different answers. From the lens of the work that we do, which is nervous system-based somatic trauma resolution, trauma is what happens when a survival response is mounted in the system due to an overwhelming event, and then that survival response does not complete. It stays stuck in the system, and when that's happening, when that survival energy is at play under the surface, that's when you have the various effects of trauma. So for example, say it's just a classic, simple example, I get put into a fight flight mode, like someone's coming at me, there's nothing I can do to protect myself. And my system mounts a survival response, but I can't get away. And I get punched out and I'm unconscious. So because of this series of events and how it happened, that instruction that my system mounted, which was run away, which turns on a very specific part of the nervous system, the sympathetic fight-flight response, that never got to happen, even though the instructions were written. So those were still playing out in my system. So how might that show up? Well, if you think about the fight-flight response and what it does, you know, it, it brings a lot of blood flow into the limbs to act. Uh, so tension, it can increase tension. The muscular system is getting ready to act. Uh, the mind will be scanning for threat, perhaps. So if we think about anxiety, for example, anxiety is the system preparing to meet a threat all the time. Where's the threat? It's like, it, and it may not be conscious, it may just be a feeling, but that's what's happening underneath the surface is the scanning for threat. So that's kind of a simple example. And then when you get into freeze, which is the other side of the survival spectrum, that things get a little bit more complex. Uh, so, for example, as an infant, if we're in a chronically stressful environment where our needs aren't being met, and we're not being attuned to appropriately such that we can develop as we're supposed to, that is perceived as a survival threat. Even if there's no actual abuse, just that misattunement and neglect to what the human system needs will be perceived as a survival threat. And that's kind of the norm for our society. Um, is people aren't educated about how to support a developing nervous system. The demands of industrialized society keep us going, 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 keep the parents stressed out, maybe not connecting, not able to attune. So this is something that I see as the majority of the problem that almost everybody industri in industrialized society is living with 
is this early developmental trauma where the system is experiencing stress and it's mounting these fight flight responses, but we're infants. We can't do anything. Literally, we don't have control of our limbs. So what happens is the system learns to default to freeze. When fight and flight doesn't work, that's the third thing that comes on is freeze. The system says, oh, we didn't get away. We didn't fight. Now we're going to die. So we go into this freeze mode where we get numbed out. We, it encourages dissociation. Uh, it brings the blood to the core. So what we might experience, we might experience hopelessness, sluggishness, depression, chronic fatigue, or it may be much more subtle than that, which is what we normally see, which is where it's just kind of like, I don't, there's no, I have no sense of purpose. Um, I don't really know what my authenticity is. Um, I have trouble speaking my truth. When something happens stressful, I clam up and I sort of shrink inside rather than rising to meet it. Those are the more subtle ways that it may show up. But that's just a whole spectrum of different ways that survival responses can be mounted and then not allowed to complete. And then some of the effects that we see when that happens. And that, yeah, varies from those very subtle effects, which are often just sort of norms, you know, be polite, don't be authentic, you know, our society reinforces these things yeah. to all the way to full-blown anxiety, depression, and what we call syndromes, which are like uh, autoimmune disorders and complex problems. So that's, that's, in a summer, in a nutshell, a big nutshell, that's kind of it. Yeah. It's just fundamental foundational knowledge, which every single human being needs to understand, especially like parents and expecting parents. Yeah. And you're right, because it's almost like the moral code of society is based on dysregulation. It's built to, to cater to it. So right. either either can't make each other visible. Um, that's right. You no. Know, but, Absolutely. Yes, no, I mean, yeah. our society depends on everyone being in survival mode. Yeah. If people weren't all in survival mode, they wouldn't do the things that they're asked to do. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, yeah, I mean, the whole, and that's yeah. got really, I mean, that, that goes way back if you want to talk about ancient roots of, you know, being in survival and feeling enslaved. Well, that goes, you know, way back. So uh, yeah, we can get into that later on, maybe. Yeah, I mean, yeah. more now could could be worth yeah. start. Could be worth starting right. there. I reckon. Sure. Yeah. yeah, let's yeah. do it. Well, I mean, that's so. Of course, now we are diverting slightly from the somatic trauma uh, world, which is based in research and science and anecdotal um, evidence to the you know up the wazoo. There's so much that supports these perspectives on trauma. Now, if we're going into ancient origins of humanity. Then we're looking, we're coming at, you know, from material that many people might disbelieve or think is conspiracy theory. But in fact, there's all sorts of archaeological, mythological evidence, cultural evidence to support the notion that human beings, us homo sapiens, were engineered to a certain degree long ago. Um, if we look at the ancient Sumerian mythology that talks about the Anunnaki who came down and they were looking for gold uh, for their planet's atmosphere. Um, they basically were in trouble, and they realized that they need gold was very useful because when it's super fine particulate, it could be used as a protective element in the atmosphere. It was also part of their uh, religion, and uh, like the elixir of life, something that uh, enabled very long uh, lives. They wanted gold. They found Earth. They started gold mining operations. And eventually realized, well, we don't want to do all this ourselves. There's these lovely um, 
Homo habilis running around the plan, the plains of Africa, where which is where they first landed. And so they started experimenting and essentially created Homo sapiens um, as we are now. And with the program to mine gold to for their masters. So I mean, <laughs> and that has you know carried all the way through till now. We we have these instructions. What's the, the the time period? Obviously, different scholars when they mm -hmm. speak about these subjects, whether they use the term Anunnaki or other terms. I know in different yeah. parts of the world, there was different words for these fallen angels. Per se. Yeah, Nephilim or yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. What's the, the the general time period? That... There's a lot of there's a lot of disagreement on that, and I can't say that I know for sure. Gotcha. But my hunch and what I've sort of gone with in the work that I presented is around 350 to 450 thousand years ago. Wow. Yeah. And and they, and they they had a technology or technologies that you know people would would scoff at today and be like, you're you're full of shit. There's no yeah, way 350,000 years ago there were technologies to potentially genetically modify humans, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Oh yeah, that and a lot more. And they, there are archeological artifacts that people have found, like ancient things, like computers that like, what the hell is this? This doesn't fit. And you have to go looking a bit, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of archeological evidence that supports this. And yeah. of course, mythology, which is just, what is mythology? It's history that's really old. Yeah. Right. So yeah, you make a good point. So, yeah, that's and, and you know, when I well, was living. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Joel. No, it's all right. It's all right. Well, I think I think mythology is more than just really old history. It's also psychic projection, so, mm. so, so to speak. Right. Yeah. But this this is what I want to get my head around personally. So we're talking about 350 to 400,000 years ago. And we're trying to piece together some kind of story. So what are the various evidences or proofs that allow us to eventually somehow form this story that Anunnaki mm. came down and, and and engineered us like what are the what are the crucial I guess pointers to the that Sumerian story? yeah the Sumerian tablets or the Sumerian history and the clay tablets are probably the biggest one the work of um Zechariah Sitchin uh the, he does he's one of the main scholars that went into translating those so that's where we get the Sumerian uh, mythology from, mm -hmm. um, and, and it tells this story um, of this. Just, this is just literally the story they tell of the, they were on this planet and they were having these struggles, and they came here, and you know it's 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 all written down. Um, and so that you know, and of course, there's going to be debate among different scholars to the translation and stuff. But that's the prime piece of of mythology okay. that, that supports it. And then also there's tie-ins as you go through time, like the Egyptians will reference Sumerian stuff and Greeks and Romans will reference Egyptian. And you know, there's references to Atlantis and Greek writings, right? There's, so there's, as we go through, we can follow the threads of these different mm -hmm. figures as they're referenced by all these cultures that keep on evolving. So there's there's quite a bit beyond just the Sumerian tablets as well. It's just sort of secondhand, right? Like the Greek guy heard it from the Egyptian guy who had right. So, mm -hmm. and then there's also archaeological relics um, that are not explainable. I I can't think of the names of them off the top of my right. head. Yeah. yeah, where where does um like in terms of your research if, if you've done it uh, in this area of human consciousness on how back then the psyche um, 
was operating in a certain way or human consciousness was what it was. Whereas uh, now um, there are those who say that because of some ancestral trauma or some mm. global cataclysm that it literally, like you could say, shattered the human psyche or impacted mm. the psyche to this place yeah. that um, has uh, which is why there's a reason why we are the way we are now, but it's because of what happened so long ago on some global level that we can't even mm. comprehend the level of catastrophe that happened. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's different scholars that's, that have spoken about this. I mean, one of our mentors, yeah. Michael Desarian, has, has dove into this subject uh, in, in his work. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, all cultures, all early cultures reference an ancient catastrophe, yeah. global catastrophe. Um, so it, often referred to as the flood, right? Um, I think it was a lot more than that. From the research that I've done, what I've come up with is that it looks like during the time when Atlantis and Lemuria mm -hmm. were both co-developing, and which was happening simultaneously, there was a real divide between those cultures. So Atlantis was much more mental, much more technology-based, uh, Consciousness-driven technology as well, but they were also really into their gadgets over in Atlantis. And then Lemuria was more like uh, mysticism, shamanism, uh, relationship with the natural world, natural magic, development of consciousness, working with sound, uh, do, working with like um, using sound for levitation of materials. Uh, that's how they built some really ancient megalithic structures, some of which are still around, like under the water. Um, so as those cultures were developing, there was a conflict between them and there were forces that came in from the outside that basically took advantage of that conflict. And those forces are the ancient roots of what we currently call various things, um, the cabal, the Illuminati. Those are all just sort of surface labels for a deep, a hidden power structure, which mm -hmm. goes all the way back from what I've seen to this time of Atlantis and Lemuria. And they basically propagated that conflict. And there was at, at one point a energy-based, either a weapon system or a shield system, I think it was a weapon system that got activated. That was, if you're familiar with the concept of the Merkaba field, mm -hmm. um, which is the natural electromagnetic field generated by the heart and gets stronger as you develop your consciousness and your connection to the heart. Well, this was based on Merkaba technology, but it was synthetic, um, and it did not uh, work, essentially. It caused a huge rift, not just physically, but psychically. And through that psychic rift came lower dimensional beings that flooded our reality and attached to all the people, because they were like these little like first and or second dimensional consciousnesses that didn't belong here. But so they just sort of attached to whatever was around. And that's what I think a lot of people are referring to when they are talking about the effects on cultural consciousness that have traveled down through the ages from that cataclysm. It wasn't just the physical cataclysm. It was these negative psychic energies that, that came through as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that, because um, the little research that I've done kind of aligns with what you said, speaking of Atlantis and Lemuria and, and some battle between the two and how that impacted um, humanity from that point yeah. forward. Yeah, and that was long after um, the the whole ancient Sumerian, uh, mm -hmm. that was relatively recently um, compared to the 450,000 years ago timeline. That was more, it was 
later on from what I'm, but again, like who knows for sure, right? For sure. We're, we're it's all a lot of doing, speculation. It's a lot exactly. Of speculation. I mean, those of us who get interested in this stuff, we're just doing the best we can to piece yeah. stuff together. Um, you know, and I, that's why I wrote this book called uh, History of the Multiverse, basically trying to trace our current global situation all the way back to its ancient galactic origins and origins in creation. And, and you know, I, I, I say right in the preference, like, don't take this as fact. This is, you know, uh, something that I've presented that's meant to activate your own memories, that's meant to activate your own impressions um, of this time. And, and I think stuff like this happened, but I'm not going to say for sure this was yeah. happened here and this, then this, and then this, right? Like, because we're all just sort of working our best to put it together. But I think one thing we can know for sure is that our history is far, far longer, more complex, more rich, more ancient than we are taught. Mm. So, so interesting. Um, so this third party that we're calling the ancient origins of the Illuminati or the Cabal, does this tie into like the Enki and Lil story? Um, well, yes, in a way, but like I said, Enki, so Enki and Lil, they were, they were Anunnaki figures. So they were much older. Mm-hmm. Um, now, according to some, they, they were basically not immortal, but close to immortal, uh, lived, you know, very, very, very long times. And, and there's many thoughts that they are the same gods, like throughout Sumerian to Greek to Roman through like that it's the same people, the same extra dimensional intelligences um, that are presenting as those gods. Um, but I don't know for sure. Um, but yes, Enlil was on the negative polarity side of things and Enki was on the positive polarity side of things. Um, it's actually, and if the story that I channeled and or and is a combination of channeling and researching and reading, um, but basically there was a conflict uh, that was not on this planet. There was it was on a planet called Maldek, which is now our asteroid belt. Um, it was a it was a, another planet in our system that was destroyed um, through this war between them and Mars. And in that rupture, in that fracture, the there was that's that group that we're calling the Cabal or the the Dark Men from Orion is another name for them. The Thirteen Bloodlines. They traveled through space and time from that point of destruction and arrived into the early Atlantean society at that point. And and so they actually came interdimensionally into um, Earth at that time because they saw that it would be a time that they could take advantage of what was going on, essentially. Crazy. I feel like you're asking us to be a very interesting conversation between Seth and Shane Bales. Um, Episode 13, who... I mean, is Illuminati bloodline for all for mm. all that he says. And we shared a very interesting conversation which echoes um a lot of what's being shared here. But mm. yeah. Yeah. All right. So tying this back in to what we were saying at the beginning. Yeah. So intergenerate, we want to talk about intergenerational trauma. Yeah. So not only do we have what we know about and just you know, recent history, wars, all this stuff, but we have this ancient, ancient programming in our DNA that tells us you are to be subservient. You are to not be authentic and powerful. You are to work for the master. And right, and what do we see like in our society? 
you know, is so maybe that mythology is a psychic projection, like you say, of our current times, but I think there's some truth to it. Mm. And I yeah. think, you know, there are some ancient roots to the patterns in us that keep us repressing ourselves. And then, of course, that is reinforced by the structures of society. Well, well I think this is a good... Well, this is a good segue, and uh, and Joel, if you want to jump in, you can. But in terms of thinking of these, um, you know, ancient bloodlines, or if we look into our past, that circumcision was used as a tool, yeah, to traumatize men to to impact their nervous system in a way that would make them subservient. So, can you comment on that? That's right. Well, along with many other techniques, yeah, it's an ancient form of trauma-based mind control. Um, that's, you know, as the military knows now in the modern times, using trauma to control the mind is the most effective way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, talk about an early imprint that's going to have a massive effect. Now, I don't want to insult people for whom it's part of their religion. Um, I think it could be interesting to ask, why is that still happening? But, you know, if that's your tradition, that's your tradition. But from a biological point of view, well, what you're doing is you're cutting off the most sensitive part of the male anatomy, the part of us that is the most, you could say, connected to the divine feminine in terms of levels of sensitivity. And and it's the part that is supposed to literally connect with the divine feminine. Like it's it's the male equivalent of the clitoris and it's at the tip of the penis. So it is supposed to be part of that union. And it is also, of course, serves many other functions, protective, um, you know, maintains a good pH balance. There's many functions of the foreskin, but it's, it's also the most sensitive erogenous zone. And so, you know, removing that, cutting it off, usually without anesthetic, at, at, as an infant, that is the, I'm, what is more horrific than that? And what a deep insecurity that is going to create in the male. Not only that, physiologically, the effect of that, the constriction that would happen, like if you think about, again, you can't get away, but your body would be trying to get away. In myself, I've traced a chronic um, contraction of the psoas muscles and the pelvic floor that all went back to that circumcision experience, which affects everything, right? So... I'd love that you said that because before I even learned more of the intricacies of the body and nervous system, when I learned about circumcision, I was I, I actually was curious because I, I visualized like when you see what these babies are put in in those little there's like look they look like medieval like yeah. like kind of torture things where they strap yeah. your arms in yeah. and that there's when you think about something happening down there, your immediate reaction is to like contract yeah. and close yeah. down. Yes. So yeah. I think of like a one day, two day, seven day, eight day, however old baby, um, them doing that. And it's, I know it doesn't surprise me. You think of that, the psoas contraction on such, on such a deep level and, yeah. and, and what impact that has on, on psychology, you know? That's right. Because uh, the psoas is a huge part of the fight flight mechanism, right? It's high in the, highly involved in the connection between the core and the legs and, and running. So if you're chronically contracted through the pelvic floor and psoas, that is going to perpetuate the the survival response and all the psychology that goes with it. Absolutely. I mean, much less add on all the other chronic stressors, right? Also, I think that it creates a 
an early betrayal. Um, it's now we're not our cognition isn't online, but I think there is a cellular knowing in an infant that their mother is supposed to be their protector. Like you're, you've been inside them for nine months, hearing their voice, right? And there is this instinctual knowing, and then you are taken away from them. There's this huge rupture. And then this horrible, horrific mutilation happens to you. It's like, where's, where's my protector? Where's my safety? Where's this, this feminine energy that I've been marinating in for nine months? And so I think it creates this hatred, an, an unconscious hatred of the feminine that I think is at the root of a lot of what we see in terms of violence and pornography. Because I mean, pornography has always been around. It used to be a lot more innocuous. And if I think back to 70s or 80s, or if you think back to like, you know, medieval times or in the, in the drawings, you know, like there's always been pornography, but there's been a growing trend of it becoming more and more violent, more and more violent. Mm -hmm. And I think that is partially at least due to this culmination of unresolved rage at the feminine because we weren't protected from this horrific experience. Yeah. You know, I, I one thing I loved about your article on it is that I came to this, let's say, a conclusion, but uh, myself in terms of like thinking about this unconscious like antagonism towards the fe feminine and feminine. And I saw you write about it, and I was like, yeah. "Whoa, dude! I feel like no one talks about this." Yeah. Now, to play devil's advocate, let's say eighty percent of the world isn't circumcised men. Let's mm -hmm. say I'm just throwing that number out there. I don't know what yeah. the exact numbers are. Yeah. But yet there's still this treatment towards the feminine. So someone who would want to come in here and say, mm -hmm. Seth, yeah. um, I hear what you're saying, but there are a lot of people who aren't circumcised and they uh, don't treat women well either. So what yeah. do you say to that? Yeah, I would say that circumcision is not the only reason. It's part and parcel of an overarching toxic patriarchal system. And it keeps it going and it is informed by that in the first place. That being said... Look at where circumcision happens the most. It's in all the most powerful countries. It's in all the most industrialized countries that have control over all the developing nations, mm -hmm. right? And who is setting the agenda except for the people who are mostly in positions of power in industrialized nations? So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, yeah, of course, there's other elements involved. It's just this is a big piece. And it's part of a larger system of control and domination that is, in its nature, toxically masculine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's more to it than just that, but I think that's a big part of it. I agree. Mm. So, porn, yeah. addiction, and circumcision. Yeah. You make a connection between the two. Yeah. Can you talk about that more? Obviously, you mentioned yeah. what you just did now, but can you elaborate? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, I'm coming from my own personal, this is from my own personal experience and also, also social observation. But yeah, I, this isn't something that I have done a double blind, you know, clinical trial or anything. So this is just my perspective. But what I found is, okay, there's this primal wound to the sexuality. So one, sexuality is coupled with fear. And, and also, there's less sensitivity physically. Like you have to get more friction in order to have an orgasm than if you have a foreskin. 
Now, a lot of that can be repaired through different kinds of work, but you know, growing up as a teenager who has all those, you know, hormones, you know, it's just like, wow, okay, uh, what am I going to do? I'm I'm scared of women. I have this wound, um, so I feel and I feel fundamentally insecure as a man. I'm not a man yet. I'm a young man. I'm maturing, but I have this fundamental insecurity. I don't feel confident to actually connect with women. I mean, and so what do I do? I turn to something for an outlet. Porn is something that you can have absolute control over. And I think that is one of the biggest aspects of it in connection to this wounding. It's about having control. It's about having agency. That's one of the biggest things that happens with trauma is our agency is taken away, our choice, Mm -hmm. our ability to choose. Mm -hmm. So what could be more powerful I mean, sexuality and orgasm, sexual energy, all of that is so powerful for the human being, for the human male and well, and women too. But I mean, in this context, I'm talking about men. It's a very powerful energy. And how amazing then that I get to have complete control over how I move this energy and over what I'm seeing. And I can make the women pause right? They're, if they're on a screen and I can rewind them and I want to see that thing again. Total control, total agency, total safety, because there's no actual person there. It's just on the other side of a, of a screen or it's on the pages of a magazine. So it's very safe. You have total control and that really can satisfy that sexual urge when there's all that deep insecurity and wounding there. So that was my process of you know, sort of discovery and looking at it. And I came to realize that that suffering, that pain, a lot of it, if it's not treated, it will go, it will seek more and more and more edgier stuff. Yeah. That seems to be what happens is, is you can start off with something very innocuous like a Playboy and then like there's your by the time you're 30 or 40, like I didn't ever went down this route. Like I never went down, thankfully, the really dark path, but it's out there. Like oh, yeah. there's some really horrific shit out there that I think just it's as if the wound's not addressed, you're going to seek edgier and edgier and more extreme things because your sensitivity is decreased. And because you have that, that need for control, which is can be become sadistic. Yeah. Um, easily if that wound isn't addressed. So, yeah. Well, it's like any, any drug per se, like where someone yeah. builds a tolerance. You build a tolerance. You need... Like I need more, I need more, I need more. That's and, right. Uh, and I, from my experience, like when you think of sex, you think about orgasm, I mean, wh- there's not much that feels better, mm-hmm. you know? So if that becomes part of your, your um, addictive programming it's yeah. it's it, it can be very challenging i mean i've definitely grappled with my my form of porn addiction you know i don't mm-hmm. know if i would say i am but it's definitely something that plays on me and plays on my yeah. psyche because of this early conditioning seeing my first porn video yeah. uh probably 13 actually i think yeah. i found a porn mag underneath my dad's bed when i was like six Mm. You know, like yeah. I don't remember. I just have kind of a recollection of it. And so, mm-hmm. what does that do to a child's developing brain? Which is another yeah. subject. And I'd love to hear your like, what does porn do to the brain? There's so many articles on that. But mm. from your perspective, what what does it do? Well, I mean, it's essentially you're talking about the pleasure principle, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it's those pleasure centers in the brain that are getting lit up, and 
it like it is like just like a drug. It's like you need more and more of the stimulation in order to get the same result, you know, to those pleasure centers. Nice. So it, it, you can't really stay with the same thing. You want to keep on finding more stimulating things. So and because yeah, like you say, you develop a tolerance. So yeah, yeah and I think you know it, it makes actual relationships extremely problematic to say the least um you know if you're if if a guy grows up watching porn thinking that's what sex is like with an actual other woman well i mean that's they're going to be in for a rude wake-up call unless unfortunately they meet someone because now i mean there's been many women who are conditioned to play that role of the side of of that side of things yeah right so i mean it could be that you end up just reenacting that in in real life with your partner as well but one of the things connecting it back to the nervous system that's really important i think to realize is that sex in that context is basically a sympathetically driven action and there isn't much ventral vagal you know connection, connection. right it's not about connection it's about the the buildup of pressure and the release of that pressure is a sympathetic act and in the orgasm itself, there's some parasympathetic function. But sex is ideally meant to be this beautiful melding of excitement, sympathetic, and ventral vagal social connection all happening at once, which is what makes it so beautiful. So the brain can get fixated on that sympathetic fix, wanting that sympathetic jolt of, of pressure and release. And do you think circumcision can have an impact that uh, decreases, uh, uh, let's just, a man's ability to be in ventral. You know, when you think about that term, oh, I have intimacy issues, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that circumcision can have impact on intimacy. Of course. That's what you're saying. Of course, exactly. That's exactly it. Because you're terrified of intimacy because that would mean being vulnerable. And, and if you're heterosexual, that means being vulnerable to a woman. And a woman is the one who freaking betrayed you and created this wound in the first place. So, oh yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And so much is, is, is happening unconsciously. It's not like, yeah. you know, a 16-year-old boy or young young man is like, well, uh, because uh, when I was one day old, I, you <laughs> know, my mom wasn't there for me. And I, no. I have, you know, it's just, it's wild, man. Wild. Yeah, it's all, it's all unconscious, subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. I want to bring something up here. So like earlier on, we touched on this idea when we're talking about ancient origins about lower forms of consciousness and lower mm -hmm. forces coming into this realm, so to speak. And I've heard different thinkers and writers touch on this, but do you think like porn and the more horrific insidious forms of it can almost be a gateway for like attachments and, and lower forces? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you can speak on that, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's yeah. in the um, metaphysical realm, I guess you could say, there's a concept of negative energy as food. Um, and there's loosh. various being, yeah, loosh, exactly. Yeah. And there's there's various beings that just that's that's they love it that's their food they slurp it up it's a psychic it's the psychic energy of intense suffering, and that you know our our planet is at this point essentially a loose farm, I mean that's that's in terms of it's that's what it's been I think it's moving out of that right now, but for the last thousands and thousands of years that's what it's been, and absolutely this is connected to those, you know, lower vibration, um, low, actually, I'll make a distinction here. 
Okay. When I was talking about the rift um, from the Atlantean wound, from what I understand, that was lower dimensional consciousnesses. So they're not evil. They just don't belong here. Um, and, and they need to go back to their correct place. That's different from the energies that feed off of Lush. Those are more what we call, I would say, fourth density, astral plane denizens. They hang out in that, um, in between the fourth and the fifth density, uh, there's this Sorry, I switched from saying dimension to density. I usually say density because it actually makes more sense to me than dimension. Dimension has mathematical connotations. So Mm -hmm. yeah, around the the lower fourth density, this astral plane tends to be where those creatures hang out that like to feed off the louche. And that's where the, like we get into the the reptilians, the Draco and those folks uh, generally are purported to be hanging out around those levels of vibration. And so it's just like... (laughs) Yeah. Well, it it makes sense in a way that like, I mean, you'd think that whoever was feeding or whoever was cultivating the food source would obviously be um, manipulating what what, what takes place in order for that food to be most... To create more food. That's right. Like any good farmer, like, right? You got to maximize your yield, you know? Um, It was a terrible movie, but Jupiter Ascending... uh, It's terrible. (laughs) Terrible, terrible movie. What a piece of shit. But like, but they got some stuff right. Yeah. Um, you know, not some of it metaphorically, some of it literally. But in terms of the earth being a, a farm for a, a negative agenda, intergalactic civilization that's at a you know different level, then yeah, that's that's all pretty right on. Yeah. Mm. So like um we hear of archonic forces. Is are these archons that we're talking yeah. about? Um well the archons, I would say, are the forces that are behind. Uh, so archons, if you read my book, those are those early, early, you could call demonic energies. Essentially, they were fragmentations of the divine that got denied in the process of creation and evolution and sort of dumped into the void, which surrounds creation. And so they are essentially always trying to attack and destroy creation. They're the, the archons or asuras, they're also called they basically were written with these instructions that I shouldn't exist and therefore nothing should exist. And so they are sort of the top tier, um, sort of tied in with AI, negative AI um, consciousness. Um, they, I would say I see those as sort of the outer forces. And then what we call the cabal, the reptilians, the Illuminati, all of these different factions of what is essentially just a toxic control structure they're like the intermediary. They're like helping funnel the loose and the suffering up into those those higher uh, those higher densities. Yeah. So based on all this information, like what do you think is taking place on that structural level now? Like obviously we've seen this incredible upheaval the last two years, unlike anything yeah. we've experienced in yeah. terms of pros and cons. Like obviously there's been a huge awakening process take place as well. Absolutely. But what do you think is happening behind the veil on that level, which is trickling down into what we're seeing taking place? Yeah. So in 2012, uh, the earth and our solar system crossed above uh, the plane of the ecliptic in terms of our galaxy. And we moved into a different vibrational space. So that has enabled this unfolding of what's happening now. Um, and it will continue to happen, I think, for quite a while. The way that I interpret it and have always felt it is that what is happening 
is the divine feminine is now reclaiming her power. And that is why everything comes back to trauma healing, because it is through the process of trauma healing that we empower and connect to the divine feminine energy. So that is like this tidal wave that's rising from underneath the surface. And the energy in the cosmos is also like very much supporting that. And so what's happening is the old toxic power structure is losing its energetic underpinnings. It's losing the architecture that supported it in terms of frequency. And now it's essentially like a cornered beast, like that old power structure is just, ah, it's being shown the door and it's doing everything it can to stay with what it knows because it doesn't know how to think creatively or adapt or evolve. It only knows how to keep doing the same thing, which is why we're seeing more and more and more overt, obvious, ridiculous examples of this because there's no, they don't know how to do anything else. So that's, that that's so much I, I always thought for, for years it was noticeable, but these last few years, and especially like, come last on. year, it's like, wait, what? This is a news article? This is what's being pushed on the population? Like, this this has yeah. to be a satire, exactly. satirical article. But no, it's real. It's coming from CNN or Fox News or whatever, you know? Whatever, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, man. And I think it's because that's that's what's happening. They're being shown the door. There's no other option. And it's going to be messy while that transition happens. So it's almost um, like the final thrashing of a snake. You know, it's no, no, got it. no choice, but yeah. yeah. Yep. And it, make, it makes sense in the regards that also like evil can't create of itself, you know? Um, That's right. In a sense. That's yeah. right. It only, no, it only knows how to do the same script, which is about domination and control and oppression. And the energy is changing on Earth to just simply not support that anymore. So, yeah. Exciting. Very exciting. Um, I was... Go. No, you, no, you no, go. You, you go. Go. I, I was gonna. When you said snake, I was gonna segue. as a perfect segue. I was yeah. like, speaking of snake, um, <laughs> circumcision. And uh, how do you? How do you like? It's it's a subject that no one wants to talk about. Mm. You know, I mean, more and more people are open to it. But even even like I I went through SC's three year program, and when I and it was never mentioned yeah. once during the three years. Uh, when I brought it up to my facilitators, hey, do you know anyone that works specifically with this? It was like this like weird thing. Mm-hmm. And and I just was like, what's going on here? Yeah. Like, I, it, it really turned me off, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, because I thought, here's something that happens to 50% of the population, you know, throwing that number out there. And 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 it's like, oh, no, we're not going to talk about it. This is pushing under the rug. Yeah. And I'm just like, so so what can a what can a man or a young man like do? Yeah. to regulate from something that they have no conscious awareness of. Yeah. Oh, I'll absolutely. let you answer it, but quickly, the segue from snake to circumcision was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> snake, snake, like penis, you know? I get it. Snake, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a waggly it's thing. Bad. <laughs> you know? Anyways, I can't win them all, you know? Oh, that's great. Joel's just judging us because he still has for his foreskin. So, you know. He's, oh, I yeah. see. One of those intact, healthy males. Exactly. Like, see, so he's he's sitting there with signaling. his mug. With I'm just virtue signaling. What did yeah. you say? Just virtue signaling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, so a couple of things. One, why isn't it talked about? Um, I think it's primarily because of, think of all the parents who have to realize how horrifically they screwed up their kids. Right. Yeah. 
no it's, no it's a deep it's a deep vulnerability to acknowledge and sit with you know it would it's, yeah many don't have the psychoemotional fortitude to go hey i i made a choice or i listened to someone or i followed a tradition that's that right. maybe really really hurt my my child that's right Who wants i mean how many that? of those sc trainers that swept that you know didn't want to talk about it had kids that were circumcised right yeah uh, yeah so it's it's in our culture it's it's changing slowly it's starting yep. to become more recognized as just useless and stupid and horrific, but it's still also at the same time accepted as normal. Most people wouldn't connect it. Like if you ask someone on the street, are you a fan of female genital mutilation and clitorectomies? Like they're all gonna say no. I mean, I would hope for the most part. Mm-hmm. But if you ask the same people, you know, what do you think about circumcision? Oh yeah, I'm glad I got, you know. Yeah, it's great. It looks yeah. better. It, uh, you know, yeah. it's for cleanliness. It's for it's for right. all these other reasons that they change reasons of every decade. Denial. Exactly. Yeah. It's 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 the same as a clitorectomy. It's the exact same. It's just the male analog. So, yeah, it's been normalized, and people don't want to look at the amount of suffering they may have caused. Um, now, in terms of what to do, what can you do about it? I mean, everyone's got to find their own way. Um, but you need the right support. Right? You need to start by doing this work, essentially, whether that be with a practitioner or like in Irene's online programs. You need to learn about your nervous system physiology. You need to learn about the survival states. You need to start learning what they feel like, start learning what it means when you're in fight flight mode or when you're being dominated by freeze and how you can sense that, because then you can start to work with it. And that's the long path that leads to that kind of recovery. Now, for me, I had been doing the trauma work for about seven and a half years before I got to the circumcision trauma. And when I did, it manifested first as a rash, a bright red rash right around the ring where I was cut. And then that spread into my thighs. And that was the, I, I believe, the, the sympathetic, the held sympathetic rush, the heat the toxicity that was held up in those tissues from being chronically constricted, all that stuff was released first. And then massive amounts of um, procedural memory coming out. So self-protective response, kicking, kicking away, uh, getting, trying to get the doctors away from me, lots of constriction and then contraction and then expansion through the pelvic floor, all of that stuff. Um, it, was, it all kind of happened in the course of a few hours. Um, when I got to that layer. Um, but yeah, it took like seven years of consistent work to get there. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what it would be like if someone had the intention of like yeah. going straight there. But I mean, generally speaking with trauma work, we tend to peel away layers. And, and, it, and the system, generally speaking, will often protect us from those really, really deep pre-verbal uh, horrifying experiences until we're ready. Because when you're dealing with a pre-verbal trauma, there's no cognition to make sense of it. Um, it's it's an internal felt sense experience that you learn to make sense of in a, in a different kind of way than like, I know this thing happened to me and this is the memory and right. So it's not like uh, T, it's not like T model work uh, to yeah. in terms of SE speak where it's like, this is the event 
and we're going to carefully work around the event. It's like, no, it's, there's no, there's no consciousness around. There's no there's, memory. There's no, there's I can't no be memory. Like, oh, uh, I was brought into the room and then the yes. doctor and his white coat showed up. Yeah. None of that. It's just like this sort of murky swamp of, of sensations and emotions and felt experiences and impulses. So. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think it's just absolutely incredible that, um, our biology is capable of going back there yeah, you know, and being able to yeah. reconcile something like that. It is. It is. And not just there. And it's, it's, we're capable of reconciling things from the womb, mm-hmm. um, from our parents, yeah. from our great grandparents, from, you know, our own past lives. Um, all, everything that we've been through as a soul is present now here in this physicality, uh, I believe. Uh, and, and so I, it's it's all accessible. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question? Just, sorry, just quickly. Like it ties into yeah. this concept where I, I think the nervous system is our karmic imprint, so to speak. You know, it's absolutely reflective of it. Absolutely, like that. All that information is in there. Also in the DNA, in yeah. the in the genetic code. Yeah. 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 Well, you sh- just shared your experience of getting to that layer of trauma healing around circumcision. Uh, from your personal experience. What did you notice after that experience versus before? Like, like how did your day-to-day experience, how did your reactions, how did your sense of self um, shift? So a lot more calmness as, as a baseline. And I was already pretty darn regulated. Um, but having that chronic sort of constriction let go um, definitely brought in just a deeper level of ease. Mm-hmm. And also that is the point at which I started to step much more into my masculinity in a powerful way. Um, so for example, I've been training as a boxer for like five years, um, not actually fighting or anything. Just, I love the martial art. So mm-hmm. training with a personal trainer, but after that experience, I actually found sort of just life happened, led me to a new trainer um, shortly after who was much more experienced than my previous one. And it's just started going much deeper into the relational aspects of boxing, Uh, started sparring um, actually with another person some, and then like actually went, had an experience of going to another gym and like sparring with someone I didn't know who was like, you know, potentially dangerous like putting myself into more sort of traditionally masculine warrior archetype experiences. Those started to emerge after that experience where like it enabled this aspect of myself, the warrior aspect to come in and start living and being expressed in different ways. Yeah, man. (laughs) You know, I'm curious because I I definitely consider myself, um, someone who's pretty regulated. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's definitely the feedback I've received even during SC. And yet there's a defensiveness Mm. that is like inherent in me that I've always had. And you can ask my wife, it's like, like a being on edge. Mm, Yeah. Like, it's like, it's like, I will, like, I will, I'll cut you, like, I will cut you. Like, if you try to come at me, I will cut you before you even think about coming at, you know what I mean? Like, there's something that I have um that I know exactly what you mean and so I'm curious if yeah. if that was if you if you experienced that and that settled a bit yeah yeah that's that's part of what I mean 
um, by that sort of chronic tension, that preparedness, right? Uh, I think that's what that is. It's like this, I, I'm just like, I'm always ready because someone's going to try to fuck with me and I'm going to preempt that, you know, by just being, you know, keenly aware of that coming and I'm going to cut that off. So absolutely. This is great. This is such an awesome <laughs> conversation. Like, like to, to, to be three men and having these dialogues um, and to talk about these issues, but even going real mm-hmm. deep and getting out there and talking about the Anunnaki and everything and ancestral mm-hmm. trauma, uh, I think is uh, really important stuff in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys tend, I think, and I haven't seen your, your episodes yet, but it sounds like you guys cover a wide range of all yeah, sorts we're, here, of we're, we're here for the truth, you know, right. and, yeah. and even back to what you said earlier when you started the episode, I think like wanting to just explore and be out there and, you know, mm. we're here for it. We're not like we have it, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the truth seeking yeah. process is, is messy. Yeah. You know, you have to navigate, you have to go down the rabbit holes and then you have to challenge your belief systems and, and be yeah. like, Oh, well that resonates. That makes sense. Uh, you know, that doesn't make sense. And, yeah, we just want to. We're, we're passionate about knowledge. We're passionate about health. We're passionate about you know sharing these, information. Yeah, sharing information. Yeah, and I think we're we're in a unique position because um, like we're not overly conspiratorial. We're happy to go anywhere, but we keep we try to keep it grounded and, and rational as well, and help thing help yeah. facilitate things to make sense in in in, in yeah. a real way. You know, which is pretty cool. And we're going to divert back because I want to have this conversation, if you don't mind, more on the esoteric side of things. But within esoteric, I guess, philosophy or writings, people have various different perspectives on the moon. And Mm. there's there's a large portion of it, I guess, that believes the moon is actually not a natural entity or is some kind of placed object or a redundant spacecraft or something like that. Yeah. Um, what's your thoughts on that? So did you guys see Moonfall? No. Another terrible movie that <laughs> had some really great elements of disclosure in it. Um, it's uh, it just came out recently. Um, yeah, just it was, you know, it's a Roland Emmerich <laughs> apocalypse film. Got it. And and not very good. Um, but some very um important elements of disclosure in there. So from what I have figured out for myself after looking into this stuff is yeah absolutely the moon is not an actual object there's no way there's way too many pieces of evidence that point to it being artificially created um for one just the fact that we can have these eclipses i mean that's just uh, it has to be in exactly the right spot at exactly the right size in order to have a perfect eclipse the chances of that happening naturally by something hitting the earth and breaking off a chunk and it spinning into orbit and forming a moon are astronomically thin. Um, So there's that. There's also the experiences that NASA had of like dropping their fuel tanks and then hearing it ring like a giant gong. That's referenced in this movie, actually. Um, So it's, yes, I I am certain that it is a created structure that is actually metal inside uh it's accumulated a lot of dirt around it over the ages or maybe it was built that way i'm not sure from the mythology that i uncovered it was brought here uh to it help the tidal systems um it was actually brought way back when it was the planet was under reptilian control um you know talking about dinosaur eras they're using it as a farm the dinosaurs were essentially like food source for them but also part of their breeding program for creating different warrior offshoots, genetic manipulation. 
And the moon was part of bringing in a tidal system to help life flourish and also was to be as an observation station, essentially, um, to you know just keep an eye on things. And that it's been taken over by different forces throughout time, like different polarities, different uh, beings with different agendas have come in and taken control of the moon. Another aspect, and I'm not sure about this, but they say that you know part of our life here on Earth is in some ways a matrix. Um, there, that there is a hologram that is that we're in essentially that is it's so powerfully generated. It's it's interactive, but that that is generated from the moon. What we call the Van Allen belt is actually the field of that holographic projection that keeps us in this third density experience, uh, third dimensional experience. I'm not sure about that. Um, you know, I, at this point, I don't really believe anything. You know, I, I've like I've gone through so many layers of like, oh yeah, that's it, that's the truth. You know, like in the path of conspiracy and research and all that stuff. You know, you you become very certain of many things. I think along the way, and I think eventually you realize that you're really not certain of anything, but you feel certain ways about things. And I've never felt that the moon was natural. It's yeah, it's I think it just feels right to me that it is an artificially created object. Um, another thing that they say in that movie is that there is a, uh, an, a negative AI presence in the moon, which I thought was very interesting because that does go along with a lot of that I've heard that there, the AI, the sort of projected holographic computer system in the moon was infiltrated and taken over by a negative AI presence and has been part of our um, mythology in the more recent times. Uh, projecting the various God programs, the various religions. So, and there's all sorts of say, like the rabbit holes are deep and varied. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty darn certain that it's not a naturally created object. Um, in my ebook, there's a chapter on it that, that talks about it and just lays out all the different evidence that points to it being uh, built, a built structure of some kind. Yeah, I guess um, obviously the Saturn moon matrix is another theory um, mm. where Saturn's projecting some kind yeah. of this field onto the moon which is like a soundboard which is creating this hologram um yeah. here on earth it's i mean per yeah. personally like the i the idea that the moon is an artificial structure or the idea that like we've had some genetic man manipulation in our history i find that a little bit triggering within within me because me as a as a perennial optimist i like to think of myself as this perfectly i guess divine creation that has unlimited potential and capacity available to me um well you are yeah you are and that's that's the rub right is uh, they maybe not fully have known what they were creating i mean for one humans are nothing new humans humans have been around for millions and millions of years in the galaxy it's just this particular form of human homo sapien on earth yeah has these various programs and stuff but we're part of a lineage that is essentially galactic royalty. Humans are one of the few creatures that have a fully developed emotional body and a consciousness that's capable of interfacing all the way up to the highest, finest densities of creation. And there's very few creatures like us, which is part of the reason that make it so like we've been a hot commodity for the negative forces. I mean, our creativity, our ability to build things, um, our emotional body, which puts out all that lovely louche if you really put us into suffering. But mm -hmm. all of those things can also be harnessed for good. 
So mm. I think, you know, it's no different than it's, it's an extrapolation of what we're born with. It's obvious in society. I mean, everyone can agree that we're born into societal conditions and expectations. There's no conspiracy there, right? Like yeah. there's obviously cultural norms and various expectations in our society. Well, this is just an extrapolation of that. And just like you can break out of those cultural norms, you can break out of the genetic programming. You can break out of the intergalactic trauma, whatever it is, however it's showing up for you. It's always possible to break free of that because we're tremendously powerful. We're tremendously powerful as human beings. So yeah. fear not. Take heart, young man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I'll sit back on my throne again after hearing that one. <laughs> yeah. And remember, yeah, like, bro, and remember, bro, you still have your foreskin, all right? Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, yeah, there's a system of domination and control that's kept us enslaved as a species for thousands of years. So what? Fuck off. Like, I'm going to live my exactly. life. That's literally, oh. that's literally what we're all about. Yeah. It's like, okay, whatever. I'm doing this thing over here. And that's how you escape it. You, you just become creative. You become generative. You outcreate that system. That's what we're about, man. 100%. Um, oh, oh, oh. So have you, have you personally had, I guess, experiences with i guess other interdimensional beings or whatnot and can you speak on that yeah. yeah um so when i was a kid i i had a lot of negative ones they definitely there were some attempts to get me early on um never to the point of being abducted but having like thankfully i've also had a lot of protection in my life um just because of where my soul has come from um as i've had some good help uh, that have kept some of that at bay. But yeah, definitely early childhood experiences, astral experiences, uh, really creepy stuff, uh, like, you know, faces outside the window, uh, little, you know, the little gray guys, um, you know, some of those types of experiences. Uh, and then I've had lots of, um, in meditation, all sorts of experiences, both positive and negative with, with different uh, consciousnesses. Um, uh, mostly overwhelmingly positive in terms of the, the beings that I, I connect to. Um, and also memories of my own lives as different species, as different uh, races. Um, yeah, like I, that was one of the biggest one in terms of reclaiming my shadow self was this life I spent as an inner earth uh, lizard wizard, you know, one of the, one of the baddies, real bad. Um, who was on, you know, involved in all sorts of horrific torture and all that stuff, you know, one of the, one of the loose harvesters. And, and so, you know, I had a memory of, of being that creature, um, which is, you know, I, I think the, the doorway that trauma work opens, this kind of somatic body-based trauma work is potentially limitless because mm -hmm. it is somatic. It's because you're tuning into the cells that lead all the way into the DNA and when you can track things and tune into things at that level of experience, it opens up the doorways into your all your lives. Um, so yeah, I, I've had all sorts of different experiences of my own memories and also communication with other other beings. I have not had like the experience of like being taken up into a ship or any of that kind of thing, which many people have had. It's like, just a whole I, different. It's a whole different like ball field whole different game to think on to think on that level of mm. you know and you know i guess people also have to um 
you know, pe- people can get sucked into the place where it's like, there's if there's all this stuff that I don't know, and these these entire worlds mm-hmm. and dimensions and realities that are possible to me, then what's mm-hmm. the point of even playing the human game? Why can't I watch? You know, but I think mm-hmm. that's a, that's that's a huge trap in itself as yeah. well. You know, it's the best game in town, and it's I mean. I, Again, I'm I'm coming from a cosmological perspective here, but for what I'm from what I know, being a human on Earth, resolving your trauma is the highest purpose in the universe right now. It is literally helping creation to heal, because the spirit of our Mother Earth is the largest, most cognizant piece of divine feminine energy in the universe. She is the boss. Our planet Earth, our Gaia she's the boss of all of this stuff so by us coming here and working to heal ourselves we are interfacing with her we are helping her heal we are the cells of the planet so the trauma that we heal is reflected in transpersonal material that is part of this large healing process so i mean i think being a human on earth working to look into the basement and resolve what you find there is the highest, most spiritual calling a person could do right now. And, and it's ironic and also makes sense that, you know, by the way that you become the most powerful spiritually is by becoming the most powerful mammal, right? By really, really learning to tune into the wisdom of your mammalian nature, which is what somatic trauma healing is all about. It's like we share the same processes with all other mammals, with the exception of our neocortex yeah conscious mind yeah 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 well we have volitional consciousness right we can choose essentially yeah and we can we can think about stuff and self-reflect and you know have conversations about you know other dimensions and whatnot (laughs) so yeah we, (laughs) we can we can do all sorts of stuff but our conscious mind also gets in the way in that sense yeah. too. When you think about an animal who's just yes. escaped from attack, they're going to go off, do the thing, you know, yeah. tremble, shake, et cetera. Whereas a human, they can they can um, stop that process from happening because of their conditioning. That's right. Know? That's the that's the double edged sword of the higher brain. Yeah, it's like it can let you do amazing things, create wonders, and it can also enable you to suppress your innate survival responses and instinctive nature, which is yeah, what happens all the time. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, like in 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 a sense, we're the only species that can choose to act against our own interests. That can choose to act right. against our own survival. Act against what's actually good for our life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and we we see it rampant around us. Of like, of, yeah. of, of, obviously, many people are stuck in that state. But that's just right. to contemplate, then you know, the correlation between consciousness and the nervous system and freeze and flight. It is, 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 it's fascinating, man. And it's like, I feel like we're just at the tip of the iceberg of nervous system work and understanding the nervous system um, yeah. right now, you know, yeah. because I feel like this hasn't been prevalent in the way it is now ever before. No, no. I mean, the word, the word somatic, people, people still don't know what it is, but more yeah. people yeah. Are, 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 are familiar, or at least open to working with the body. Yeah. Oh yeah. So do. I mean, how many hundreds of years of psychological tradition are there? And you could say psychology dates always back, all the way back to ancient Greece, um, you know, in terms of some of the processes of self-examination and stuff they were doing. So like the mental approach, thousands and thousands of years, the somatic approach was developed in the 70s. Yeah. And, yeah. Yet, our, and yet our first language is sensation. It's not words. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, so much of trauma work, 
of this kind of trauma work is getting out of your own way and of, of allowing those instinctive responses. Yeah. yeah. What do you, what do you visualize the next 10, 20 years to be like? Mm. What do you think we're heading? Well, I think we're heading. Things? Yeah. I think we're heading to really good times. I mean, we're, we're heading to a, a, a slow unfolding of humanity really reclaiming its birthright and, yeah. you know, living in harmony with nature and going out into the stars, which we've already been doing, uh, but it's been all under wraps, right? So as the, as the toxic power structure crumbles and the new sort of harmonious way of living emerges, uh, it's going to be a clash of forces for a while. So I think and when I sort of feel into it, I feel that like, okay, in a couple years, it's going to be, things are start going to start to pick up. Like, I think the current COVID narrative is pretty much done. Who knows? They might try something else. Um, but I mean, it's, I think there may be one or two more sort of grabs for our attention um, in turn on a big scale. Um, and that could happen over the next few years, but I think by five years from now, it's going to be a pretty different place. Um, there's also, of course, um, real changes that are happening planetarily with the climate. Um, I don't think that they're necessarily entirely due to the popular narrative, but no one can deny that the climate is shifting and changing in ways. Mm -hmm. And so that will be interesting to see how that change in population density you know, is, is going to have to reflect that. Um, so 10 years from now, I think we could be looking at quite a bit of a smaller population um, and very different systems in place. Um, it seems what I see emerging is local, uh, local systems, yeah. uh, local interactive, uh, interdependent systems that function at that local level. Um, and that's what I think we're heading to and it may be that there's a period of time where those are sort of not intercommunicating so much. Um, it may be, but I don't think, whenever I feel into it, I have no sense of global catastrophe or apocalypse in the way that it's often portrayed. And then you have this big reset. I don't think it's going to be like that. I think it's going to be a messy evolution where what is emergent becomes gradually stronger and stronger. Yeah, because there is this bifurcation of society that's kind of happening. To yeah, people. it's happening. It's it started really, I mean, in the '60s was sort of planted the seeds for it, and then we went away from it for a while. Um, and now, and because it, it wasn't it wasn't grounded, right? The '60s was like utopia, like spiritual bypass playland, right? It yeah, was, yeah, yeah. So it's like that that emergent reality has to come from a place that's rooted in regulation of the nervous system. Like that, that is the, I think the biggest piece in terms of a global trend that has to grow for this to happen. I think it will. Um, and I think, you know, the work that Irene is doing right now is really creating that new medicine um, that is grounded in an awareness of nervous system physiology. Because as people who do this work know, Almost all health problems stem from unresolved trauma and nervous system dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So if you don't, and, and the medical system does not know that. Yeah. At this point, the medical system has no clue. 
you know, you go to a doctor and try to explain this stuff, they'll, you know, they will not know what the hell you're speaking of, they'll, you know, want to put you in a psych ward or something, who knows, you know, so. True. I love it, man. I, f- I feel very, very similarly to you, you know, um, just look at simple things like there's never been more distrust of allopathy, of Hollywood, of media, like yeah. people who wouldn't even be able to handle the conversation about um, vaccines are now far more open-minded to it than they were even two years ago. Yeah. Um, and you're right. We are returning to, to the local level. Those who are, who, who are on a deeper awakening process are saying no to Babylon for good. And they're coming back to the ground too. And yeah. it's almost like that, as above, so below, as within, so without. What's, what's reflective is as we come back to the nervous systems of the body, also in our ex- external realities, we're coming back to the most local community levels, rebuilding from the ground up, proper structures, proper foundation, proper connection um, yeah. with individuals who are on the same page and we're working together more voluntarily, you know, less yeah. less less altruistically, collectively, but more so as empowered individuals who want to strive and thrive together. Um, I'm super excited for what's yeah. taking place. and. Mm-hmm. These are all things that I've less recognized in my own life and changes in, in, in myself. And the, yeah. I always consider the journey and the path that I'm on on some level is reflective of what's going on on a, on a, on a bigger level, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that the, the possibility and the potential of those who choose an authentic path now is just incredible in my view. Yeah. And that's a, and that's, that brings up a really important point that I, in terms of we're talking about what's emerging like planetarily, hmm. those who choose this path, of healing and humility and being of service and being authentic and learning about their physiology and their body and all of these things that we're talking about are going to be very supported, very energetically supported. Things will happen for you. Things will unfold and along that path to because that's that is the momentum the universe wants us to go. That is the organic trend. Those who cling to the old paradigm, who refuse to change are going to get sicker and sicker, faster and faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And we already see it happening. It's obvious. It's happening. It's obvious. Yeah. It it doesn't surprise me too that um, as we come back to physiology, knowing our bodies, that there is a desire to connect to nature more because we are nature. But as as we're disconnected from our bodies, dissociated from our bodies, the idea of being close to nature and having your fingers in the soil and your feet in the ground seems so foreign. You're like, what do you mean? I'm... I'm going to spend 40 years in New York city and not see a park, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And Absolutely. I lived in New York city for nine years and I live in LA for nine years. So I, I enjoyed my city life. And yet yeah. now we're, I'm much more focused on living a, a more natural life. And by natural, I just mean surrounded by nature, more yeah. quiet, more slow, more regulated. Yeah. Like literally, you know, just the simple act of getting your bare feet on the ground is so important and like how many people do that ever yeah you know it's like you got to get your souls rubber souls yeah yeah get your bare feet on the earth on the sand on the grass you know that's that's a very simple thing that people can do to start changing things you know yeah Yeah. so so grateful to share this conversation with you grateful for the work you do and obviously irene um it is it is truly profound um and so resonant um what what you've shared with with my own journey and i'm sure you're asking us as well but we have a final question here for you um so if you had all of social media at your disposal you can send one message and every single social media user on planet earth would read your message what would that message be well it would be start learning about your nervous system and how trauma affects it 
And yep. you can do that by going to Irene Lyons' YouTube channel. <laughs> Love it. Simple as that. Yep. Just start learning. She's great. Yeah, you guys are great. I mean, I I love that I connected with Irene. I, for mm -hmm. someone who talks about the nervous system, she always felt really grounded yep. with it all, and that's what drew me to it. And yeah, uh, it doesn't surprise me that we're aligned in a lot of other ways as well. Totally, totally, man. No, she's a visionary. She's you know she's the, she invented online somatic trauma healing. Yeah. Um. And and you know because she was dissatisfied with private practice and not being able to reach enough people, so she created this whole thing that now. All you out there in social media land, you can benefit from for free. Just start educating yourself. There's so much you can do just by learning. And then if you want to take it deeper, yeah, go into the online programs or find a local practitioner, you know, just do the work. It's, yeah. it's huge, man. Um, you know, like the power of knowledge to change your life, but just have to be willing. You know, you have to have to be yeah. willing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we had we had a large conversation on that um, a couple of episodes ago. We did our our seventieth episode, and it was just Joel and myself. It was technically our year, our year anniversary of the podcast. And we talked about the power of self directed learning. And we live in a time now where, at the click of a button, you have access yeah. to information. It's just a matter of the, having the willingness and the openness uh, right. and the desire to 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 learn and to grow and to challenge yourself in a way that's going to support your evolution. Um, I do have one last question, which mm. is just for you. Like, what's next for you? Like, what's, yeah. Yeah. So right now I'm seeing that I'm on a trajectory of my private practice, either closing entirely or getting much smaller um, as I transition into the next chapter, which will be about teaching. Um, mm -hmm. Irene and I um want to it's irene's mission but i want to be part of it and and contribute to it really want to create a practitioner training program that is proper mm -hmm. um because as you know the se program has so many faults and mm -hmm. and especially lately now it's really adopted like the whole woke like yeah. mentality it's just it's going into the off the rails entirely um and it was bad before that I mean, I had a good experience in my training, um, but they don't, you know, there's no testing. There's no competency evaluation. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed as a, a, as a assistant to even give critical feedback. You know, so it's like, they're not creating good practitioners. And this is one of the problems is we can't just say to someone, oh, you want to do this work, go find an SEP. It's like, you don't know what you're going to get. You, yeah. I think nine times out of 10, you may get someone who doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Um, so Irene and I, that's our mission. That's what's next. Create a practitioner training program that is robust, that is like medical school where there's testing and you have to show competency. You have to be put on the spot, right? You have to show that you know what you're doing. Yeah. That's where we're moving to next. Yeah. I mean, when I did mine, I mean, we finished what, a year, two years ago, a year and a half, two years ago. I mean, from intermediate, was it one or two on? It was online. Yeah, you know, which is fine. I'm not saying that there isn't advantages, but when you think of like doing touch work or SC yeah. work, like it just feels like it needs to be in person. It needs to be in person, and that's that's part of it too. Is it'll be this is, and that's our vision is a school, yeah. you know, like eventually a actual physical school, um, and then eventually, hopefully, many many schools, um, as as we teach more people how to teach and and all that stuff. So, yeah, that's the vision. Yeah, and I have plenty of stories from my own training to talk to you about regarding. Oh, I bet. 
the woke nature of oh man oh man All right. let's so talk about that offline maybe yeah yeah <laughs> Beth, i love it i love your vision um you know so grateful for everything that you and irene do guys thank you so much for listening to this episode of here for the truth this is an absolute classic and we'll see you next time take care oh uh, wow what a conversation what an absolutely incredible knowledgeable human being he and irene um it's just so profound the work that they're doing guys thank you so much for listening wherever you're listening please subscribe or rate this podcast it would mean a great deal to us also any questions that you want to have please pop them feel free to pop them through in the comments whether it's on youtube or wherever it might be we'd love to have the discussion with you thanks for thanks for being here thanks for being here for the truth and we'll see you guys next time Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.